Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Matthew chapter 8 as we read verses 23 to 27. Hear now the word of God. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask God to bless his word. Lord Jesus, with such a familiar text as we have here today, it may be tempting for us, for me, to engage lazily with your words or to think that we already know everything that there is for us to see here. Would you instead remind us, Lord, that for us the problem is not knowledge, it is trust. For us, the problem is not that we don't know enough, God. It's that we don't love enough. And so would you give us a love for Jesus, especially as we see him here? And in that love, give us trust. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm not afraid to to tell you, and some of you know this about me already, that I'm I'm sort of a somebody who works ahead, and I I write these sermons long before I actually preach them. And if you ask me sometime, I'll tell you how far ahead I actually work on these sermons. Um, Part of it is if you feel stung by a sermon a particular week, uh, just know that it was not planned, but by the providence of God long in the past, and. Fascinatingly, I, here we have a sermon text before us this morning dealing with Jesus and his power over storms during a week when Fort Myers was under a great deal of floodwaters. Uh, I could not help but feel that the providence of God even, not even uh, was at work in Fort Myers, we trust, but even in his timing and the selection of today's text. God is sovereign over the storm. We're going to see that today. Um. But I want to point out something, and, and it's something that you should know, and it's something that you, you do know if you've sat under the preaching of the Word, and if you've, you've read your New Testament for yourselves. But the New Testament is a book that reveals Jesus to us. And the events surrounding his life, all of them were engineered and planned by God to make sure that the disciples and all of those who encountered Jesus would understand who he was because of what they experienced and what they saw. The idea was not simply for them to just have a a series of really fascinating moments in life. The whole point of all of these events is to understand Jesus, to have Jesus revealed to them. And so you have a moment like the healing a couple of weeks ago. What did we learn with the healing that Jesus performed? We learned of Jesus's compassion. We learned that he loves people who are suffering. We learned that Jesus had the authority to heal. What kind of person is Jesus? Well, when you look at the events of his life, you see 
the answers are unfolding before you in the process. And in the process, we learn who Jesus is. But the events of Jesus's life and the events that are recorded here also teach us about ourselves. They are also moments where the disciples are learning who they are. And they're learning who they are in the face of who God is and in the face of who Jesus is. And so, you know, those who live, those who walked with Jesus, what did they do? They reacted to him. They had their own thoughts about him. They had their own thoughts about what they were witnessing. And so, in, in a sense, we discover that God's work in the New Testament is not just about showing us Jesus. It's about showing us who we are in light of him. We're learning things about ourselves, especially as we're up against the stark white purity of Jesus and we see ourselves as a dramatic contrast to that. And, and next week, we're going to see that when Jesus heals the man with the demons, a massive part of the story is the fear that people felt. So it's not just that this is going to be a story about who Jesus is, but when he goes and he casts out the demons, we're going to focus a great deal on how everybody else handled that. How did everybody else handle that moment? Well, the answer is they were filled with fear. And they beg him to leave the region. They say, get out of here, Jesus. We don't want you here. And today something similar happens, right? The disciples uh, with, are with Jesus. And as they see this, this miracle that we're going to get to, they have their own internal battles going on. Uh, they witness the stilling of the storm. And they do not just stand there as disinterested observers. This moment forces them to ask a question. What kind of person is this? They have to reckon with that question for themselves. And so this is a passage where two things happen. On the one hand, we learn who Jesus is. We see who Jesus is. But on the other hand, we also, well, we have an opportunity where the disciples are learning who they are. And they're learning who they should be. You see in Jesus' words to them, you see in what he says to them, he's disappointed. Because there's something else that he expects of them and he's not seeing it. And so... Let's just move through the passage. We'll, we'll go in three stages today. Uh, even though it's alliteration, they don't have a rhythm to them. So I'm, I'm 50-50 on whether this is a good outline or not. But uh, substance is more important than style. So let's go with substance here. The first is the coming storm. A second is the cry for salvation. And then third is the climactic sight. So those three will sort of guide us as we move through here. Um, you know, the point here is for us to see Jesus, but the point also is, and I, I want you to be thinking about this. I want you to be even praying quietly to yourself about this. Lord, even as I see who Jesus is, show me who I am. Show me not only who I should be, but show me, show me who I really am right now and how, how far short I am of the person you call me to be. Because the disciples are going to get that today. They're going to get that sense of their own shortcomings here. Let's see if God won't do that for us as we go through the text. Uh, First, this morning, we have the coming storm. You see it in the first two verses here, verses 23 and 24. It says this, when they first got, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. So this is the occasion. Uh, Notice the occasion. It is the crossing of the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, it's called the the, the Sea of Galilee. I I checked into this because I I wanted to make sure that I I wasn't off or something. It's not a sea. It's just a lake. 
Um, but they called it, a, called it a sea. Now, I do not know exactly the motive for calling it a sea, uh, why they're not just calling it a lake. It's funny, sometimes in the text it does call it a lake, and then sometimes it calls it the sea. Um, I sometimes tell stories about Kansas. I think you're going to get two Kansas stories today. Um, hopefully you're going, what, two sermon illustrations? <laughs> what a treat. Um, I'd go through sermon class and I'd get feedback from the professor and he'd say, you could use a sermon illustration here and there. And sometimes I take his advice. Um, some places like to exaggerate how interesting they are. And I'm going to use a Kansas example. Um, in Kansas, we have a mountain. Now, <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but we do. At least we have a hill. Uh, we have a hill that's called a mountain. It is, it's called Mount Sunflower. And Mount Sunflower, I cannot, I cannot be emphatic enough about this, is not a mountain. It is, it is a hill, and it is barely a hill. Mount Sunflower sits a proud 4,000 feet above sea level but it is virtually indistinguishable from the surrounding landscape. Um, however, it is the highest point in the state of Kansas, and so it's called Mount Sunflower. Now, I'm not joking when I say this. If you go to Wikipedia and you search for Mount Sunflower, you're going to see a picture of a few rocks, a dead tree, and a 1997 Crown Victoria. It was like, is it the most majestic photo someone could find of Mount Sunflower? I don't, I don't understand. I'm sure somebody else is going to go look, but don't do it during the sermon. I'm going to say that like twice today. <coughs> the University of Kansas says this about Mount Sunflower on its website. Although it is on private property, the landowners allow access to visitors aspiring to conquer its lofty summit. <laughs> And gaze over the vast, short grass, prairie landscape. There are more accolades I could pour upon Mount Sunflower. Um, but, you know, I think, what did we need in Kansas? We needed our own mountain, and so we created one. In fact, I remember in grade school uh, learning that the highest point in Kansas was Mount Sunflower. And I remember someday wanting to climb that mountain. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, that's all you're going to get about Mount Sunflower. You've got to do your own research from here on out. Uh, I think maybe the Galileans needed their own sea. And so they called their, their lake the Sea of Galilee, not the Lake of Galilee. However, the thing about the Lake of Galilee, the, I'll probably still call it the Sea of Galilee because that's what they call it. The thing about the Sea of Galilee is that it sits below sea level. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth. And the winds would sweep down onto the lake and genuinely create these terrifying squalls. In fact, you can still go, you can go on YouTube today. <laughs> you can still go on YouTube, just like you could during the first century. You <laughs> There's a serious message in here somewhere. But you can go on YouTube and you can actually look at the weather on the Sea of Galilee and I'm telling you, there's a video by this man named Moshe Alpert, and Moshe Alpert recorded these waves that were going 8 to 10 feet high. And so imagine being in a boat, and we'll talk about this boat in a moment, but imagine being in a boat on a sea where the waves are that high. 
uh, a very, very terrifying place. So when you see it in motion, if you were to look at the Sea of Galilee, except for an especially calm day, it, it looks like a sea. It looks like an ocean. It behaves like one. Um, this is a lake that would make experienced fishermen quake in their boots. Um, and I want to prepare you for what's ahead as we go through Matthew. The next three stories all center around the Sea of Galilee, right? The first miracle that we see today happens during the crossing of the sea. Uh, the second miracle happens when they arrive on the other side. And then the third miracle happens on their return to Capernaum. So it's just interesting. They, they look at this boat and they think, this boat is how we're going to get around. That's what this is. And really, though, this boat is meant to be an opportunity for Jesus to show himself to these men. It's an opportunity for them to see him in so many different ways, in so many different situations, because they need to know Jesus better. This boat is a vehicle for knowing Jesus. And that also means that this moment happens in part because they followed him to begin with, right? They're doing what disciples do. They follow Jesus. And following Jesus, you know, we see this as they're crossing the sea. Following Jesus does not mean a smooth path. Right? It doesn't mean an easy way. It doesn't mean a simple, uncomplicated life. Following Jesus exposes us to a world of possible trouble that we would not have known otherwise. And these disciples, they get a taste of that trouble, right? The text says there arose a great storm on the sea. It's not a storm. It is a great storm. It's a storm storm, right? It's, it's not a little rain. It's not, a, it's not a gentle but persistent Oregon shower. It's like a, it's like a Kansas rain, right? Got to keep bringing Kansas up. Kansas has terrifying rainstorms about every two weeks at least during the summers. My house would be shaken by thunder and lightning, and I thought that was totally normal. And then I then after that lived in Arizona, and I never got any of these storms. And then I lived in Mississippi, and I never got any of these storms. And then I moved to Oregon, and I never got these storms. Meanwhile, uh, Kansas was the exact opposite. Um, well, this is not an Oregon storm. This is a Kansas storm, but with lots more water. Um, these men are scared by the storm while Jesus is, is sleeping. Um, but before we talk about sleeping Jesus, I want you to think about this. Scripture teaches us about storms, and it teaches us where storms come from. Ultimately, this storm exists for a reason in God's purpose. Ultimately, the reason is not chance. The reason is not accident. The reason is that the storm, as frightening as it is, reveals Jesus to these disciples. And part of the way he's revealed is that he echoes the scriptural teaching that God has power over storms. If you go to the Old Testament, especially to the Psalms, one of the things you find is Psalm 107.23, where the psalmist is praising the power of God over storms. And listen to this portion of what the psalmist says. He says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And the passage goes on, and we'll, we'll come back to it as we move through the text. But notice where the storm comes from. Notice the origin of the storm. The psalmist says, He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. 
Not just that storm in Psalm 107, not just this storm in our text today, but all storms are under the command of God. Storms ultimately arrive by the the hand of God, not by chance. It's important to me that, that you all understand this, that we live in a dangerous world that has been impacted by the effects of the fall. Natural disasters happen. Storms rise. Hurricanes blow. Earthquakes shake the earth. Volcanoes erupt. Hailstones fall. You think of it, and they are a part of this world ever since sin has entered in. All of these things scream insecurity. All of these things scream you won't be secure if you try to make this world your anchor and your home. Um, every place that I have ever lived, I, uh, everybody feels really good about where they live except for a few things. So in Kansas, everybody's afraid of tornadoes. Actually, Kansans aren't afraid of tornadoes. That's a mistaken belief. Visitors to Kansas are afraid of tornadoes. We go out and stare at them. Um, Everybody in, in Mississippi thinks they feel pretty good, right? But then we have floodwaters and the waters rise and the rivers crest and nowhere is safe in, in Mississippi either. Um, just saw it this summer. Uh, I lived in Arizona and in Arizona, they, they generally feel pretty secure and pretty, pretty good about this place. Sometimes people will joke, oh, you never get tornadoes here like you did in Kansas. Uh, and then in the meantime, you bake all summer long at 120, 130 degrees, especially if you get in your car where it's closer to 200. Um, you, you, get, you get squalls in the summertime as well. You get huge storms there. Um, and also you have just a lack of water, right? In the West, there is a, there's a sense in which water is going to be harder and harder to find as the years tick along. And then here I came to Oregon and I thought I found it. I found paradise on earth I have found a green place, there's a sea nearby, there are mountains, and now I know that even earthquakes are a reality here. So there is no paradise on earth, and that's on purpose. God makes sure that all the places we live have some kind of insecurity. It's not an accident, because there are no phantom molecules in the universe, there are no atoms in the universe that escape from God's providential care. Read the scriptures over and over and you will find a consistent, constant, unrelenting insistence that none of these things slip through the fingers of God. I want you to feel the weight of this. Jesus' power over this storm would not have been seen if it had not been for this experience. And And the disciples would not have seen how weak their own faith was if it wasn't for this moment. Right? If it weren't for this storm, they would have perhaps told themselves, we have strong faith. We have great faith. We're very faithful. We followed Jesus. Didn't you see? We decided to give up our lives and go with him. And even though you might think, well, that's a very faithful thing for them to do. Here they are in the boat. And he says, your faith is wimpy. Your faith is puny. And if they hadn't been exposed to this, they would have told themselves otherwise. It is really in our trials and in our testings that God reveals new vistas of his grace. It's the trials. It's the trials. I was just talking to a family member going through quite a bit this week. And he remarked to me that I have never grown except when I suffered. And I told him, that's every conversation I have with church members. 
people who are growing because of a trial, because of a storm, because of some suffering. It's not the comfortable people who grow. It's the people who've been tested that grow. Second, this morning, we see the cry of salvation in verse 25. It says, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Um, There were a, a few years ago, there was an extraordinary discovery along the Sea of Galilee. There was a fishing boat from the first century AD that was discovered. And you might think to yourself, How does a wooden fishing boat survive for 2,000 years? Well, the answer is that it had sunk near the shore. It became buried in mud, and the mud covered it, and it covered it so well that it preserved it. And it it stayed covered for 2,000 years in the Sea of Galilee. And so um, the boat has been found. It was excavated during a time when the Sea of Galilee receded during a dry season, and they removed the boat, and they have actually preserved the boat. And you can actually look it up. Again, it's another one of those things you can look up online. Don't do it during the sermon. (laughs) Someday I won't say that, and everyone's phones are going to come out. Um, But they found this boat, and, and here's the thing. What they found with the boat was fascinating. First of all, it's quite large. There's actually a lot of room in the boat for a lot of people. You could imagine Jesus and his 12 disciples being in this boat. But the other thing about the boat is it's four feet deep, and four feet might sound really deep. It might sound really impressive, but if you really think about four feet, and you think about how heavy it would be with 12 men in it, and then you think about how low it would actually sit in the water, you could just imagine this water easily lapping over the sides of this boat, and how terrifying it would be to be in this, this shallow of a boat with a storm going on. And the disciples in this moment... They really only think they know one thing. They think this storm is terrifying, right? They're they're in the moment. They are scared. The water is coming into the boat. We've got to learn from Scripture that, that things will happen in our lives that may make us feel like this is the thing that got past the Lord, right? In the heat of the moment, we, we, may, we may think it, right? This is the thing that goes over the line. This is the thing that can't possibly be from God's hand. I know God is powerful. I know that his, his providence is in all places. And I know that he never, never forgets us. I know that, that we're more valuable to him than sparrows. But maybe this is the exception. Maybe this moment's the exception. And, and in that moment, what will we be tempted to think? We will be tempted to think just what the disciples say here. What do they say? We're perishing. This is it. I'm going to die. How can I survive this? How can I make it? Now, I don't know what it could be for you. It could be something long ago. It could be the loss of a job. It could be a, a literal deadly situation. It could be a car accident. It could be, it could be a, a shooting. Who knows? Uh, it could be something you just, you just never imagined. The death of a spouse. The loss of a child. Uh, a medical diagnosis you didn't see coming. And whatever it is, In this life, we will all have moments where we are tempted to think and we're tempted to feel like the disciples think here, I am perishing. This is it for me. That temptation will cross our minds and our hearts. But here's what's really important to me that you see it. 
The disciples mistakenly believe they're dying. They mistakenly believe they're dying. They, they read the situation and they misunderstand. They, they look at what's going on and they make the wrong prediction. They're, they're not actually good predictors of what's going on. They're, they lack so much authority that they make a false statement. We are dying. They don't, they don't really know what's happening, but they know what they feel. But the truth and the feeling are different things. They aren't going to die. We objectively know that they won't die. They will live for many more years still. Uh, we understand that the disciples are wrong, but they can't see it. And all they know is what is that beneath them and beside them and around them, there is an awful lot of water. And it's crashing in. And they look down and they see Jesus sleeping. And they mistake his resting for not caring, right? And they convince themselves that they're in danger. And I think there's a principle here that is worth considering, and it's this. We are not the best interpreters of the moment we are currently living through. We, we don't really know what's going on. And so even our anxieties are unwarranted. Right? Sometimes we think we're secure. We feel secure. We feel restful. And we have no idea what's about to be around the corner. And then other times we think we're dying and we're clueless what God is really up to. We are just so unreliable. We are bad interpreters of the moment we live in. And, and here's what I want you to see. God is always up to something. Very often, it's something that we can't see and we can't discern. Um, our, our calling is then, then is not to predict. Like he, doesn't, he never tells us in Scripture, oh, predict what you're going to, do, to go through. Uh, tell me what you're about to go through. In fact, in the Old Testament, he mocks people because they can't do that. Right? So our calling is not to predict what, what's about to happen or even what is happening. What is our call then? Our call is to fearlessly rest and trust. Our call is to, is to do what the text says in 1 Samuel 12. Stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Like That's our call. But here's one thing that, they, that they're right about. I've been picking on them because they're wrong. They're going to be wrong a lot in this book. I don't know if you know that. Spoiler alert. Um, they may get the situation wrong. They may be... Deeply confused, but one thing that's for sure, they call out to the right person at least. Right? Look back at Psalm 107 again. Remember, we looked at Psalm, the Psalm 107 before, and we learned from it that God is the one who commanded the storm. He is the one that raised the storm on the sea. Well, then look at verse 28 of Psalm 107. It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And this is what the disciples do here, right? They cry out to Yahweh. They call out to Yahweh. Yahweh is right here in the boat with them. And they call out to him. Now, they, they may misunderstand their circumstances. They may have forgotten that God is with them. But they do know who to go to in their time of trouble. They go to God. And so they say to the Lord Jesus, save us, Lord. I do fear for us, I fear for American Christians especially, that we are not prone to cry out to God. We're not quick to pray. We're very resourceful people. We're very clever people. Uh, we have options. 
We have talents. We have gifts. And very often we turn to those things first. And then once we've exhausted them, that's when we turn to God. So it's only, oftentimes it's only when those things fail us that we go to him in prayer. Now, I don't know if this is true of every one of you, but I do see it in, in the American church. And worse yet, I, I see this in my own heart. I am far too quick to lean on the crutch of cleverness and on my own perceived giftings. When trouble rears its head, do you do that? We need to be more like the disciples here. Only quicker than them. (laughs) Save us, Lord. You save us. We've got nothing. You follow Jesus. How quick are you to turn to your own resources when you really should be crying out first like these disciples should be doing? What's your impulse? What's your first impulse? What's your reflex when trouble comes? These are things that God will have to search out in each of our hearts. But if you are a Christian... Please hear this encouragement. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, right? Be quick to give God the cry of salvation. Be quick to give Jesus the cry for salvation. Don't wait until your resources have dwindled. Don't wait until you feel like you're at the end of the line. Call on him immediately because that's what Jesus wants. Now, The storm has arisen. The disciples have cried out for salvation. But third, this morning, we see the climactic site. The very deliverance they are crying out for happens. But before he gives it to them, he has something to say. It says, "And and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, you may have thought, man, he really enunciated that word when it, when it, <laughs> there was something in his reading that was just strange, right? It says, it says, and then he stilled the winds and the waves, right? And I emphasize that because I wanted you to hear that he lectured them while the storm is going on. He, he doesn't still it, then give them a lesson. He, the trouble is still there and he would rather them hear the lesson in the storm then, then let it calm down and wait for the acoustics to improve. Instead, he, he just says, you've got to know this very, for, before anything else. In fact, I'm so unbothered by this storm, I will finish my sermon and then we will stop the storm. And so that's what he does. That's his first pro- priority is to, is to look up and, and lecture these men. He's more troubled by their fear than he is by the storm. Jesus doesn't fault them for their lack of strength. Let's see what he reproves him for. He doesn't say, you're not as strong as I thought you were. He doesn't say, I thought you were better semen than this. Right? He doesn't say, where is your strength? You guys are supposed to be fishermen. He doesn't do that at all. Like, he faults their faith. He, sa- he says, in essence, you didn't trust me. And you didn't trust that even these high waves were, were happening by the Father's good and wise care. You didn't trust it. Just pause for a second and think about this. Whatever it is that has you paralyzed, whatever it is that has swamped your mind, whatever it is that's feeding your anxiety, whatever is keeping you up at night, I can guarantee you of this, Jesus is more concerned by you trusting him in the midst of it than he, than he is by the actual event that's feeding your anxiety. 
Some of my biggest regrets as a Christian had to do with opportunities when I could have trusted God and instead I yielded to fear and I yielded to anxiety when I should have rested in him. Each trial, each storm, each trouble in your life is another opportunity set before you ready so that you can rest in Christ and trust that he is with you and that you have nothing to fear. It's always an opportunity to do that. And sometimes we succeed and we give him glory and sometimes we fold and we don't. Even if we did die, we shouldn't be afraid. Right? Every trial is an opportunity for us to put that belief into practice. My biggest regret looking back at the trials in my life was that I didn't trust when I had the opportunity and instead I gave in to fear, I collapsed into tears, I yielded to my worst paranoias of my own heart. When I had an opportunity from the bottom of my soul to trust him and let him take away my fears. Not because my situation was guaranteed to go my way, but because he's always trustworthy to do the right thing. And I should have believed that. It's not like Jesus is a genie who always gives you what you want. But he will always give you what he believes you need most. Right? That much is true. And if you know his motives, if you know his wisdom, if you know his omniscience, that he knows everything in the whole universe, then we should be way more contented with that than wanting to have it in our control. Right? He loves you too much to be indifferent to your trust in him. He loves you too much to be indifferent to your holiness. Those things, believe it or not, matter more to him than your finances or your house or your car or your job or your health. And I know this for a fact because one day we will lose all our money and we will lose all our health. And there will come a day where we won't have our car and there will be a day where all of those things will go away. And yet, if you are a Christian, you will still have him. So I I know for a fact that he loves you too much to let all your hope be in that stuff because his plan is for it to go. Um, We need to learn from people who've suffered. Um, Back in in Mississippi where I pastored before I came here, our, our church several times a year would do a joint evening service with a with a local um, historically black congregation in town. And the, the congregation was called Sweet Rest. And the pastor, his name was Joe Pridgen. And the pastor and I, we struck up a friendship and we mutually trusted each other. We, we knew each other. And we got to the point where he trusted me to be in the pulpit of their church. And I trusted him enough to be in the pulpit at our church. And so we would do that. We would invite them to our church. And so this, this black congregation would come to Pearl Presbyterian Church and then, and then they would invite us to their church, and uh, we would come to their church. And uh, uh, my kids always remarked, they are way better singers than us. That was the comment we always got. Uh, and I remember there was one service, and I wouldn't do this in our church, but there was one time in the service where they turned around and sang a song to us. And I thought it was really sweet. I mean, I, it wouldn't pass muster of the regulative principle. I wouldn't do it. But it was so sweet. <laughs> I, looked o- I overlooked it all just because it was so, so lovely and so wonderful. Um, 
And then afterwards, we'd have snacks together, and, and it was something that was wonderful. But I noticed a flavor in their music and in the, the preaching there that was missing from mine. And something that, that just didn't, wouldn't have resonated in our church. Um, I'll mention what it is in just a moment. Um, my mentor in seminary was Charlie Wingard, and he's the guy I ask for advice. So if I ever do anything around here that you really, really think is a terrible idea, it might be Charlie's fault. But uh, <laughs> that's actually not true. It's, but he, I do ask him for advice an awful lot. And he, I remember one time in chapel at Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, he, was, he was saying that the black church in America has historically suffered a great deal, um, often at the hands of professing Christians. And those in, in the black church are generally poorer and have fewer worldly possessions than most other Americans. I can say that was certainly the case between my church and Sweetrest when we were in Mississippi. And by having less things, they have less to love in this world and less to cling to in this life. And you notice something different in the flavor of the songs. You notice there is some hint of loss. There is some hint of not clinging to this world. And, and what Charlie recommended was he said, we need to learn to trust Jesus from the kind of people who have less to lean on. And I noticed this in our joint worship, that in spite of the suffering, they seemed more joyful and they seemed less defeatist. They, they were less whiny. They were less grumbly. Um, you do see a bitter sweetness in the songs where the sorrow is there and, and, and they're real. And you know the, they know the storm is real. And maybe they're less shielded from the storms than other Americans. Um, but they trust in Jesus. And that in many cases, the reason is because trust is all they have. You know, I want to hear of people's faith when they suffer like that. I want to hear from people who aren't clinging to stuff, who aren't trusting in stuff, who aren't leaning on crutches. I can learn more from people who have suffered than from people who have triumphed. And those of you who've endured hard seasons of loss and pain, you have more to teach me than those who have had a really great life and they can't remember the last time suffering came their way. It's just, it's just the way it is. If you've suffered, you can teach me how to cling to Jesus during those times. And that's part of what I learned by worshiping with these brothers and sisters who had all been through all sorts of difficulties, all sorts of storms. Um, I remember just like a week before one of the times we worshiped, they had a building that they had a, a kids program that they would be that they would do, uh, you know, kids programs in. And the building had collapsed a week before and they didn't have it was a crummy old building and they didn't have I guess they couldn't rebuild it. It was basically just had to be decommissioned. Uh, and they, I said, well, what are you going to do? And they said, we don't know. The Lord will give us something. He'll be fine. And they just had such a better attitude. You know what I would have been doing? I would have been making plans. I would have been talking to people who knew something about building properties. And we would have been going through all these plans. And they said, the Lord is going to take care of us. And that was their initial reaction to that in the moment. Um, it's a lesson I still learned from many of you that trusting God during very hard seasons. There's something sweet there. right? The suffering that people have gone through teaches us not to cling to this world. One of the songs we sang at Sweet Rest was Give Me Jesus. And maybe you know the song. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to quote it. You will notice repetitiveness. This is one of the things that you notice in the black hymnal. 
uh, you'll notice this. There's a repetition there and a simplicity there, and there is something about it that's refreshing. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You may have all this world. Give me Jesus. Right? <laughs> that, the last verse of the song, too. Listen to this. Oh, when I come to die. Oh, when I come to die. Oh, when I come to die. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You may have all this world. Give me Jesus. Right? You, all this worldly stuff that you're afraid of losing, money, family, health, all of it, you will lose it, but you cannot lose Jesus. The prayer of faith says, give me Jesus before I lose those things. <laughs> Teach me that lesson before I lose it all. And when I do lose it all, let me put it into practice. Jesus is more concerned about these men and where their head and heart are than he is about the boat sinking and all of them drowning. You can almost hear him saying, you're going to die someday, men. You're going to die right now is your moment to trust. And he places his finger on the root of their fear and on the root of their apprehension. He says he blames it on little faith. Little faith. We have this in common with them too. I suspect if my application for the sermon was, you need to have faith in Jesus, trust in him for the first time today. Some of you would realize that you never trusted in Jesus before. In fact, I hope if you don't trust in Jesus that you would do it today. I hope you would hear that command and that you would respond to it. And if you've, never, if you've never trusted Jesus before, then I hope you can hear that loud and clear and respond with repentance and trust in the Lord. And if that's you, talk to me afterwards. I want to help you and talk to you more about that. But most of those in this room are not there, in my opinion, because I know you. Right? We know the Lord. We've walked with Jesus for some time. Some of us a little time. Some of us a lot of time. We do trust in Jesus, but we also know that our faith is weak. And we have this in common with the disciples. Wavering faith that ebbs and flows depending on the situation. And I want you to see this. These disciples in the boat, they still have faith. They aren't faithless. They, they came with him after all. They knew they should awaken him, but they came to him in fear. And they woke him as a seeming last ditch effort. They have faith, but he says it is little faith. He gets up and he says, the people who called on me have weak faith. Imagine, imagine then if he said, therefore, I'm not going to still this storm. Come back when your faith is stronger. <laughs> the story would, well, the New Testament would be much shorter, right? <laughs> and Jesus doesn't do that. He's a, he's a savior to them as they need him immediately. Isn't it so kind of Jesus that it's, it's not the quality of their faith that saves them. It's the object of their faith that saves them, right? It's Jesus who saves them. It's not the disciples by summing up their collective inner strength. I mean, man, do I need this reminder? I have been, I have been carried through season after season of weak faith. 
I have my eyes on Jesus at times, but you know what? I looked at myself an awful lot more than I'm ever proud to admit. We may have weak faith. We may have anemic faith. We may have wavering, pathetic faith even. And yet, even then, Christ saves, not our faith. Faith is important. Faith is the instrument that takes hold of Christ. Faith is the instrument that, that unites us to him. But faith is not the agent of salvation. Jesus is. See, you're not the hero here. You, you're not meant to be the hero here. The disciples aren't the hero in this story. In, in the Bible, you're going to look in vain for heroes other than Jesus. Just page after page. Where's the hero? Where's the hero? Where's the hero? Even David, very disappointing man. He's pointing you to a better, a better king and a better savior, a better rescuer. The Bible is not a book of heroes. It's a book about God who rescues weak, wavering people. And, and in this book, God is the hero. He's just plucking people up, saving people left and right, plucking them out of fires, pull them out of, pulling them out of floods, uh, picking them up out of the, the muck and the mire. Right? That's, what, that's who the hero in the Bible is. So it's not a book of giants that we're never going to measure up to. It's a book full of disappointing people that we exactly measure to. What an incredible reminder to those of us who feel like our faith is so small. We go back to Psalm 107 again. We saw they cried to the Lord in their distress. What was the result? Verse 29. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Now again, what happens in today's passage follows the pattern of the psalm. The storm rises by God's command. They call out to the Lord in their fear and then God delivers them. They cried out to Yahweh in verse 28. The storm is stilled. What happened here? The same. They cry out to Jesus. They cry out to Yahweh and he delivers them. So there's this tight connection between this passage and Psalm 107. And in my opinion, it implies a strong claim for the deity of Christ. Right? Jesus brings a deliverance that is the prerogative of God alone. And God explicitly accomplishes in Psalm 107. There is a tight connection here. So the, the rebuke comes, the miracle follows... The revelation that this man is more than a man is inferred. And then what happens? The text tells us the disciples reckon with this question. What sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? They had their eyes on themselves. They had their eyes on their boat. They had their eyes on the storm. They had their eyes everywhere but where they belonged. And then the deliverance came. Only then are they able to see clearly and to say, look, look at Jesus. At the end of it all, before this calm sea of glass, when all these other things stop, there is this one figure who stands tall and important in the passage, ruling over the circumstances that so terrified them before. It is Jesus, the one whom even the wind and the waves obey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is one thing for us to hear this story, to be reminded of these words, to remember your deliverance. It's another thing for us to trust you, and it's very easy 
to dig into ourselves, to look to our own resources, to try to find our own strength. It is so tempting. Help us to see and believe that we are weak, that we can do nothing apart from you, that you are our helper and you are our all. Strip us of our self-sufficiency. Make us people with faith that runs to you quickly, that prays to you unceasingly, that looks to you for all our life and health and joy and deliverance. Because it always has been that way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.